0: The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Ephesians chapter 3, we begin a new chapter this morning, Ephesians chapter 3. I love a great mystery. I'm assuming you do as well. I love mysteries. Whether it's a good page-turner book that you just can't put down because there's so much excitement taking place or an on the edge of your sea kind of movie where you're just kind of waiting with bated breath to, to find out who done it. Yeah. There's something about a, a great mystery. The anticipation, the excitement, the, the thrill of, of seeing how it all ends and being held in suspense until that takes place. A while ago, Dale brought over a, a group of books. And in them are the Hardy Boy books. And we've been reading these books to our boys. And you remember the Hardy Boys? Read them as a boy. I'm reading them now to my boys. And uh, we are reading the Tower Mansion mystery right now. And it's about uh, the, a man who came and robbed this house, which had a couple towers in it. And they can't find out who did it. And so the Hardy Boys are tracking this guy down. And they finally find him. And on his deathbed, he confesses that he did steal the stuff. And uh, he says it's hidden in the old tower. And so they go looking in the old tower and they can't find it. And so they search the new tower and it's not there either. And no one knows where this is. And that's where we are in the book right now. (laughs) I have nothing more to tell you other than that. Other than the fact that my boys ask me at the end of every chapter, Dad, will you read another one? you just read another chapter and that's what they want every time we get to the end of one of these chapters dad just read another one and just tell me how it ends and that's where we're at and so I'll give you an update perhaps how it ends Brian do you know how it ends okay don't tell me I don't want to know it's the joy of a mystery of hearing how uh, certain things transpire and, and how it all ends you may be remembering that when we introduced the book of Ephesians, we said it was a book about a mystery. That Ephesians is a book that contains a mystery for us, but it's not the same kind of mystery as a detective novel. It's not the same kind of mystery as an on the edge of your seat kind of movie as you wait to see how it ends. It's a different kind of mystery. We said that when we introduced the book of Ephesians, that a, a mystery is something that is unrevealed in the Old Testament. Now disclosed in the New Testament. That is a biblical definition of the term mystery or mysterion. It's something that was unknown before the coming of Christ, but has now been revealed in Christ and in the New Testament. It is something which is beyond natural knowledge, which has been opened up to us now through divine revelation. And God, in His progressiveness of revelation, pulls back the veil and removes the curtain so we get to peer into something that we had never seen before in the Old Testament. That's a mystery. It's not an enigma. It's not something that's baffling or perplexing or something that needs to be solved like uh, the Hardy Boys mystery. It's a different kind of mystery. It's something unknown, previously undisclosed in the Old Testament, but now in Christ, is revealed and fully disclosed. There are many mysteries in the New Testament. One of those is the fact that Christ will be in you as believers. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, This is the mystery. Which has been hidden from the ages past and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. That's a mystery. That Christ would live in and indwell believers and take up residence in the very heart of believers and in his church. That was never seen in the Old Testament. Nor was Israel's unbelief. Romans chapter 11 verse 25 says, I do not want you to be uninformed brothers of this mystery. What's the mystery in Romans 11? That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Jews could have never anticipated a hardening of their nation's heart such that they would be put on hold until God does a work in the Gentiles and accomplishes the salvation of the Gentiles, which he will then resume his plan with the nation of Israel. That was a mystery in the Old Testament. So was the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 51 says, I I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That's speaking with reference to the rapture of the church. That was a mystery. No one in the Old Testament could have seen coming a, a rapture where God takes all believers to be with himself, whether dead or alive, and gives them a new body. So these are biblical mysteries. Previously undisclosed in the Old Testament, now disclosed in the New Testament. Perhaps, though, the greatest mystery of all is how, in one body called the church, there would be Jew and Gentile brought together into this one new man. That is a mystery. The Jews in the Old Testament understood that Gentiles would be saved. They had the the notion and the teaching that they were to be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. And that through them, through the Abrahamic covenant and through their proclamation of truth as a nation of God's people, that Gentiles would be saved. They understood that, but they could never have understood that God planned to draw them into one body where there would be no differences, no dividing wall, where there would be no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That was a mystery. That somehow Jew and Gentile would be equal before God. That was unfathomable in the Old Testament. Because Jew hated Gentile. Gentile hated Jew. There was a massive dividing wall between them. And it was impossible for them to see how anything could be done to rectify the separation between these two races. But Christ brought them together. Christ drew them to himself and he drew them to each other and such now that they have become partakers of the same body the same church the same living organism and it is that truth that paul continues to hammer away at here in the book of ephesians we've seen it now for three weeks in a row in chapter two and we're going to see it again today in chapter three because here's, here's why you need to understand this. Paul is providing the basis for our unity. Look over in chapter 4. This is where we're going. Let me give you a little preview of coming attractions. Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 3, he says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And because that is true, he says in verse 3, you need to preserve the unity. You need to be unified. You need to resolve differences with each other. You need to work out this unity in practice. But you've got to understand the basis for this before you exhort in practice. You've got to understand the the theological foundation that provides the basis of this before you exhort in practice and how to do this. And so what Paul does in chapter 4 says you've got to be unified, but in chapters 2 and 3 he provides the theological framework by which he can exhort that. We've been studying the last few weeks, Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 to 22, which is perhaps the greatest treatise anywhere in the New Testament on this Jew Gentile reconciliation that takes place within the church. And just when you thought we were done, Paul comes back to the same topic and he hammers away at the same truth again in chapter three. Let me read the first few verses of chapter three. Follow along. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of Which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Three times the word mystery occurs in those verses. It occurs in verse 3. That by revelation was made known to me this mystery. It occurs in verse 4. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And it occurs in verse 9, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God. This is the great mystery. How suddenly, with the coming of Christ, these formerly alienated races are brought together into this entity which you are a part of. The church. And Paul wants us to understand this. He wants us to really get this. In fact, this is another run on sentence. If you've been with us long enough in Ephesians. You remember that this is the third or the fourth one, actually chapter back in chapter one, there was a big run on long sentence as he puts his pen to the paper and begins writing and he can't stop himself. And so from verse three to verse 14 of chapter one, it's one sentence. Then he picks up his pen in verse 15 of chapter one and he puts it down again and he writes another run on sentence from verses 15 to 23 of chapter one Then he picks up his pen and he starts again in chapter two and he writes seven verses all at once to communicate that we were dead in our sin. And then he picks up his pen and here again in chapter three, verse two to verse 13, it's one sentence. Get a little window into the heart of apostle Paul, don't you? He's pretty passionate about these truths. Look at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now I want you to notice... The phrase for this reason points back to the previous section, verses 11 to 22, where Paul has just made some amazing statements about Jew and Gentile being included in the the same body, the, the, the church. And he's just spent 12 verses explaining this incredible reality. And so for this reason, it's going to compel him to say some other things, but he's looking back. For this reason, in light of everything that I've just told you, chapter 2, verse 12, remember you Gentiles, you were once separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in this world. But, verse 13, now in Christ, you've been brought together through his blood. Verse 14, he's our peace He's broke down this dividing wall. Verse fifteen says that he's created this one new man, this new entity, he's established peace. And what we saw last week in verse nineteen of chapter two, he says, Now you are fellow citizens. You're part of God's kingdom. Verse nineteen says, You're fellow citizens with the saints. And not only that, you're also part of God's household. You're in a new family. And verses 20 to 22 says you're part of a new building where you actually build up the building blocks of this church. You, each and every one of you is a, a separate building block that has gone into the building of the walls and the, the structure that make this church. So you're part of a, a new kingdom. You're part of a new family. You're part of a new building. And it's all called the church. And so in verse one, he starts by saying of chapter three, he starts by saying for this reason. Here's what Paul's about to do. He's about to pray. He's about to to, to pray for the Ephesians to get this. But do you see that little dash at the end of verse 1? Do you have that in your Bible? Uh, Paul gets sidetracked. He gets a little distracted. He he takes a a rabbit trail. Not really a rabbit trail, but he can't let this go. So he says in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Then he quits. What, Paul? For this reason, what? You're leaving us hanging. Let's skip down to verse 14. For this reason, there it is. I bow my knees before the Father. You see, these truths compelled Paul to pray for the Ephesians. And he starts in verse 1. He puts his pen down and he starts to say... Here's what I'm praying for you in light of these marvelous truths. But he gets sidetracked. And for the next 12 verses, he deals with this whole topic. And again, from another perspective. And finally, in chapter 3, verse 14, he comes back and he prays for the Ephesians. So these verses, verses 2 to 13, are a parenthesis. And he digresses for a few verses and comes back to his prayer. But here he's saying... You're not quite ready. You don't quite get this yet, Ephesians. You don't quite yet understand. I'm not convinced that you've fully wrapped your minds around this glorious reality of Christ in you and the church being reconciled and Jew and Gentile together into one body. I'm not convinced that you get this yet, Ephesians. So he comes back to it. And, you know, in the issue of real estate, it's location, location, location. When it comes to spiritual truths, sometimes it's repetition, repetition, repetition. And maybe you're thinking, man, Todd, really? For three weeks you've been hammering away at this and you're going to keep hammering away at it again? Well, Paul thought it needed to be done, right? Paul thought this needed to be an issue that needed to be reemphasized over and over. And I agree with Paul because I wish I could go out to the world and proclaim this is the basis for all your unity problems. This is the basis for all the relational difficulties that you're having. This is the solution to all ethnic discrimination and all racial strife and all ethnocentrism and everything that separates us as people out in the world. This is what will solve that issue wish I could go out and preach that to the world somehow because it's the only thing that's going to fix our unity problems so we need to hear this again so let me show you a few truths this morning from this text I first want to show you the prisoner of this mystery and then I want to show you secondly the revelation of this mystery and then thirdly I want to show you the, the explanation of this mystery All right. so let's look first at the, the prisoner of this ministry in verse 1 he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, stop right there. You need to understand that this is really difficult for us to appreciate what's taking place here. We don't live in that age. We're separated by 2,000 years of this culture. We don't sense the the divide between Jew and Gentile. We we just don't appreciate that. And really the only glimpse we get of it is perhaps the racial tension that we see still existing in our day between certain minority groups and and our group. And and whatever group you're a part of, we can get just a flavor of that. But we can't appreciate the depth of the hatred between Jew and Gentile. But you can see it illustrated right here in verse 1. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. Why is Paul in prison? Why is Paul chained to a Roman guard? Because he preached the gospel to the Gentiles. That's a staggering reality and Paul is a living illustration of the very thing that he is teaching and preaching. The fact that Jew and Gentile are brought together into one body, the church. He is in prison because of preaching that truth. It was fanatical Jewish opposition to his mission to the Gentiles that landed him in a Roman cell. It was the Jews' hatred of his intent to bring the gospel to the nation's That caused him to be arrested and because of his faithfulness, because of his stewardship, because of his commitment to preaching this reality, he was arrested and thrown in prison. The story is told in the book of Acts. Hold your finger here in Ephesians 2. Go back to the book of Acts. I want to just show you. We don't have time, obviously, to tell the whole story, but go back to the book of Acts chapter 21. And I want you to see just what led up to to this. You remember Paul went on three missionary journeys. At the end of his third missionary journey, he was on his way back to Jerusalem. And virtually everyone he encountered on the way back said, Paul, don't go. Don't go back to Jerusalem. You know if you go back there, you're going to get arrested. You're going to be thrown into prison. Don't go, Paul. Don't. Stay with us. Minister to us. Don't go back to Jerusalem. He says, no, I must go back to Jerusalem. So he returns to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And he goes back and he relates the story of what God did in saving gentiles through his ministry in the third missionary journey. Look in Acts 21 verse 19. He goes back to Jerusalem. He greets the elders of the church in Jerusalem and verse 19 says, "And after he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the gentiles through his ministry." He's ecstatic. Guys, You wouldn't believe this. I was out. I was was visiting Ephesus. And I was visiting Laodicea and Colossae and the churches in Galatia. and And I went to these different cities and I preached the gospel. And you won't believe what happened. Gentiles came to Christ. They're saved. Phenomenal. Look what the response was to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Verse 20. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you and that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. They're saying, that's great, Paul. That is amazing. We're glorifying God because of this. But the Jews hate you. They hate you for saying these things. While he was there, he went into the temple with some other Jews for purification. Look down in verse 28. Jews from Asia were there, and they saw Paul. And they immediately recognized him. Verse 28, here's what they said. Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. They got him and they see him and they say, that's the man who's bringing that horrible news to those Greeks. Verse 29. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city with him and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple now that They saw Paul in a city with a man named Trophimus who was a Greek and they instantly assumed Paul brought this man into the temple and defiled the temple. That's not true though That didn't happen, but they saw him with this Greek and this Gentile and they instantly assumed he violated their temple But it didn't happen The first part of the accusation in verse 28 is true, though. Look at verse 28. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law. That's true. Paul was doing that. He was bringing the gospel to the nations, and he was telling them that you don't have to become a Jew to get saved. That part was true. Well, this this infuriated them. They've got him in their hands. Now, here's the man who's been upsetting their whole religious system, and they hate him for it. Now, look in verse 30. Acts 21 verse 30, and all the city was aroused and the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. They went into mob mentality. A riot breaks out. They've seized him. Slammed the doors shut. They're about to kill him. When suddenly the Roman centurion, who's in charge of keeping peace in this part of the city, hears this and he learns that he's a Roman citizen, and so Paul begins to tell this Roman centurion about his situation and pleads with him to uh, be able to appeal to his Jewish countrymen. Which he does, starting in verse twenty, uh, chapter twenty-two, starting in verse one. We're not going to read it, but chapter twenty-two, in verse one, he begins proclaiming to the Jews, "Guys, listen. This is what happened to me. I was on the road to Damascus." and suddenly this bright blinding light blinded me and I couldn't see anything and I was taken into Damascus by my friends and they had me meet this man named Ananias and he said, Paul, you just encountered the risen Christ. Ananias began to instruct him on the way and send him back to Jerusalem. Look in Acts 22 verse 31. Up to this point, the Jews are listening and are saying, okay, yeah, got that. Understand, God did a work in this man's heart. Okay, everything's fine until Acts 22, verse 21. This is Paul's testimony. And he said to me, Christ said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And immediately the Jews stop him. Look at verse 22. And they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. See, up until that point, his testimony is fine. Until he said, he sent me to the Gentiles. And when he mentions that, immediately they rise up in opposition to him. And they say, this man should not live. Verse 23. And as they were crying and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air. This is about to break out into a massive riot. They were incensed, enraged. God is Jewish. Don't you dare take that news to the Gentiles. Don't you dare bring them into this body without making them go through the law of Moses. So Paul's arrested. He's brought to a trial before the Sanhedrin. He is forced to testify before the Roman governor, Felix, and then Felix's successor, Festus. that a horrible name. Sounds like an infection, doesn't it? (laughs) And then he was forced to testify before King Agrippa. He appeals to Caesar. He's sent to Rome. And he's in prison. Go back to Ephesians 3, verse 1. This is all the context of his statement in Ephesians 3. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of... Of you Gentiles. He was in prison. Because of the message that we're preaching this morning. He was chained to a Roman soldier. Because of the the good news of the gospel going forth. Not just to Jew but to Gentile as well. And they couldn't accept it. They couldn't tolerate it. They couldn't stand this message. And so he was in prison. And the very thing that he preached made him captive. And almost got him killed. killed. So here in chapter 3, he begins to pray for the Ephesians. He says, I want you to understand this. But he stops himself and says, "I, I don't think you quite get it yet. I don't think you quite understand yet the gravity of what has taken place because of Christ. And I would submit to you that if Paul was as concerned about this, so should we be. If this was such an important truth to Paul that he was willing to go to prison then it's important for us to understand the basis of our unity. None of us can walk around here saying, I'm not going to get along with that person. I'm not going to reconcile with that person. I'm going to still harbor some bitterness and some bias and some racial prejudice in my heart towards certain groups. I'm going to do that. Friends, if you have that attitude, that is not the heart of Christ. This truth was so important to Paul, it landed him in prison and it took him two chapters to really explain it. By the way, I love the fact that he calls himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Who was he arrested by? He was arrested first by the Jews, and then the Romans, and then Caesar. He was placed in this prison because of the Jews and the Romans and the Roman government. But he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of the Jews, or I'm a prisoner of the Romans, or I'm a prisoner of Caesar. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I love that. Because number one... That's what you better expect when you're a follower of Christ. If if you've come to Christ and and you've expected this to be an easy life, you signed up for the wrong team. Right? If you've come to Christ and you've expected that Christ is going to kind of solve your problems and fix everything and give you a happy life and no trials and no troubles, you've missed it. Here's Paul following Christ. Christ. Doing exactly what Christ told him to do. And he's chained to a Roman soldier. Don't you dare expect that the life of a Christian is easy. It's not. Jesus said in John 15, he says, if the world hated me, it will hate you too. You should expect that. You should just expect that. And when it's not like that, and when you can enjoy a season of, of joy and a, and a season of freedom from persecution and trials, then rejoice in that. But don't expect that to be the norm. That's not the norm. The norm is when we are persecuted and we're hated by this world. The second thought I had as we look through this is what a great perspective Paul has. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus... He has the right perspective, doesn't he? He's not bummed out. He's not sulking in a cell. He's not, woe is me. Look how awful my circumstances are. Send someone to rescue me. He's not woeful. He's not down on himself. He's not despairing. He says, hey, I'm Paul here, the prisoner of Christ. He told me to do this. I did it. Now I'm in jail. Praise the Lord. What a great perspective. He's rejoicing because even through this, he's seeing God's hand in his circumstances. And I can't help but ask you the question, do you see God's hand in your circumstances? You say, man, I thought I'm I thought I'm being obedient to Christ and I thought I'm doing exactly what he, he told me to do. And I find myself in this set of circumstances, which is so different than what I anticipated. But even in the midst of that, you say, hey, I see God's hand in this. I'm just a servant of Christ. See, it's not your circumstances that matter. It's your attitude towards them, right? It's not the the circumstances and always having favorable circumstances that that create your joy. It's your attitude toward those circumstances that, that really matters. You can't control your circumstances, but you can control your attitude towards them. You have a choice. You can either slink into a corner and manipulate people into feeling sorry for you to garner some sympathy and get some people to kind of commiserate with you or you can say you know what that's what god has for me and i'm rejoicing yeah it's hard and it's difficult and in paul's case he was a prisoner but you know what praise the lord i'm just doing what he's called me to do and i'm letting him take care of the results and he's trusting christ what a great example so here's paul Prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. Now look at verse 2. This is, this is where he gets sidetracked. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. Here, here's Paul saying, hey man, I'm just a steward. I'm just a steward of God's responsibilities. I'm just doing exactly what God has called me to do. He's charged me to this task to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so that's all I'm doing. I'm just a, am just a steward. And the word steward, as you know, refers to someone who manages someone else's household affairs. That's a steward, an oikonomia, stewardship, a house manager, someone who has responsibility and obligations to care for another's property and another's possessions and another's responsibilities. This is a, a steward. Maybe charged with buying and selling and bookkeeping and planting and harvesting and storing and making meals. This is a the manager of someone's household. Paul says, that's all I am. I'm just a, just a steward. I'm just doing exactly what God's called me to do. I'm just, I'm just trying to be faithful to the responsibilities that he's given me. I'm just a steward. By God's grace and of God's grace great attitude. Look what he says in verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. Don't you love that phrase? He says here I am sitting in prison. I'm doing exactly what Christ has told me to do. I'm just a steward of his grace. But it's all for you. It's all for you, Gentiles. It's all for for you to enjoy the benefit and the the privilege of knowing these rich, marvelous truths of what what characterized this body, the church. And you've got you've got to get this, Gentiles. You've got to see this. You've got to really grasp these marvelous realities that underpin the the foundation of the church that you're a part of. You've got to get it. It's for you. Certainly, we could. Draw some implications for us as well. That each of us is a steward. Steward of God's calling. His responsibilities that He's given us. Maybe mom's is to your children. Dad's is to your work. Time, your talents. Your spiritual gifts that He's given you in the church. All of this has been given to us by the Lord. To be good stewards of. Paul was and it landed him in prison. And he didn't care about that. But the question I would pose to you is... Are you a good steward? Good steward of your resources, your talents, your abilities, your spiritual gifts. Are you using them in the church? Are you serving? Are you plugged in? Are you are you living for eternity? Are you engaged in the work of ministry as Paul was? There's so much just in those first couple of verses, but I, I believe here you get a glimpse into the heart of a man who is so sold out for Christ. He didn't care where the circumstances led him. That's the prisoner of the mystery. Number two. The second truth I want you to understand is the revelation of this ministry. The revelation of this ministry. And it starts in verse three. I want you to get this. He says here that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote in brief. So the question is, how did Paul come to understand this mystery? How did he come to understand that Christ really was the one who removed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and brought them into one new man, one new humanity? How did he learn this? Where does this come from? It tells us in verse 3 that it, was, that it came by revelation. It was made known to him. This mystery was declared to him by revelation. This was not a human invention. This is not something Paul just kind of made up on his own. He didn't just kind of work this system up and, and try and come up with a new plan for how to do things. No, this was revealed to him by Christ. God gave him this message. Just listen to Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, I want you to listen. He says, For I would have known, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So on that road to Damascus and the subsequent days after that, Paul had a revelation by Christ to inform him of these marvelous realities. And he's now speaking the truth to the Ephesians and to us to help us truly understand. This is not some human manufactured thing. This is divine revelation from the words of Christ and the the lips of Christ himself. Christ has given Paul the understanding of this mystery. Verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. You see, Paul gets it now. He understands. He has insight. He has spiritual insight into some of these marvelous mysteries that were previously unknown. Now declared to him by the risen Christ. And he wants the Ephesians to get it. And he wants us to get it as well. He wants us to understand. He wants us to have insight. And I can't help but think that Paul is reminding us here that right living starts with right thinking. You see that? He says, you, I understand this because this has been revealed to me by Christ and now I'm passing this insight on to you so that you too can have this understanding and you too can have this insight. And what he's doing here is he's showing us the importance of right thinking leading to right living. We've gone over this so many times before. We've talked about this as a church. We've talked about the priority of the mind in Christian living. We've said that Christianity is first and foremost cognitive before it is practical. If you think right, you live right. If you think wrong, you live wrong. Friends, this is a crucial, crucial truth. That if you're not filling your mind with truth... If you're not being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you cannot and will not live properly. You can't. You can't go day after day, week after week, month after month by filling your mind with worldly truths and television and internet and everything that the world is throwing at you and expect to live a life pleasing to the Lord. You can't. Paul's getting at this right here. He says, before he even charges them to be unified, he's saying, I've got this understanding through Christ. Now I'm giving it to you so that you can have the proper perspective and the right insight when it comes to this unity that needs to characterize your church. Right thinking leads to right living. So, he says, I've understood this. You can understand now my insight into the mystery of Christ. I'm passing this on to you. Now look at verse 5. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Here again Paul affirms this was unknown in the Old Testament. This whole body of Christ Entity, this living organism that you're a part of now, Gentiles, was previously unknown, unheard of, unexplained, unanticipated. As we said, the Israelites knew that the Gentiles would come to Christ. Or they knew that they would be saved. They knew that somehow the Gentiles would come to a saving knowledge of God. They knew that through the Abrahamic covenant, that God promised to Abraham to be a... That he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And he knew that they as a nation themselves, the nation of Israel, according to Isaiah 49, verse 6, they were to be a light to the nations. They were to be the the, the evangelistic arm of God's plan and purposes to bring others to himself, including Gentiles. But they had no clue that it meant one body, one entity, one humanity, one new world. Organism. here it is, this mystery unveiled for the first time, seen for what it really is. Now, let me review for you what we said a few weeks ago. We said that the Israelites knew that there would be a coming kingdom, right? They knew that there would be a kingdom which God ruled over, which the Messiah would be the king where they would have a land and where they would be a people. They understood that. If you just trace through the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant and what he promised through the Davidic covenant, he promised that there would be for the nation of Israel a kingdom with a land, with a people, with a king who was Christ. They knew that much. There was no mystery about this coming kingdom. And when you fast forward to the time of Christ, what were some of the first words of John the Baptist, the precursor to the coming of Christ? What did he say? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ came saying those same words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Christ came to usher in that kingdom. He came to be the king for the people of Israel. He came to, to usher in this kingdom that God has been promising all throughout the Old Testament. But when Christ showed up, he didn't fit the model that they had for a king. They expected a military king, a political leader. They expected someone who would throw off a yoke of the Romans and someone who would really give them what they wanted as a nation. He didn't fit their conception of a king the Jewish nation rejected Christ. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected their their King. So the kingdom was not ushered in, right? There's no kingdom on earth today as is promised in the Old Testament in its full form. Even after the resurrection of Christ, the disciples wondered if Jesus was still going to establish the kingdom. You remember, he's, he's died, he's been buried, he's been risen from the dead. And after his resurrection, they're still asking, now is it the time of the kingdom? Acts 1 verse 6, they're saying, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Right, so they're still asking, when's the kingdom coming? The kingdom is still future. We believe in a premillennial return of Christ, in a millennial reign of Christ, where he will be ruling and reigning on this earth, where he will be the king, where he will be over his people, where there will be an earthly kingdom. That's still coming. That's still future. That will happen at the second coming of Christ. But right now, we as the church are between these two. We're between the first coming and the second coming. And in between those two comings... You have a new body, a church. And this church, you want to know how long this church will last? Let me be a little prophetic with you. This church is going to last until the last Gentile is saved. When's that? I have no idea. But that's how long this entity known as the church will last. Romans chapter 11. There's a hardening on the part of Israel... Until the full number of Gentiles have been brought in. And when that takes place, the church age will come to a close. Christ will return, and he will establish this earthly kingdom, which he intended to do during his first coming. But this gap that we're in right now was never foreseen, never understood, never anticipated, never known before, and yet here we are as the church one body different groups different races different ethnic backgrounds were brought together into one church and I can't help but think that the body analogy is the perfect analogy for the church you've got some ears you've got some eyes you've got some feet, you've got some hands and it all makes up one body that's what we are right here just look around You're sitting next to an ear. You're sitting next to a foot. You're sitting sitting next to an arm. And yet we're all one body. And it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't, doesn't matter your ethnic heritage. It doesn't matter. We've been brought together into one body known as the church. This is the prisoner of the mystery. The revelation of the mystery. Lastly, number three. I want you to see the explanation of the mystery. The explanation of the mystery. Look at verse six. He finally tells us what the mystery is. As if we didn't know because he's been at it for so long. But he finally tells us very specifically what it is. Verse six. To be specific. That the Gentiles are fellow Heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's, that's a summary of the whole second half of chapter 2. say, why didn't you say it that way in the first place? I don't know. But he, he explained it in chapter 2. Now he condenses it down into one single little verse here in verse 6. He says, this is it. Here's the mystery that these Gentiles, you Gentiles, are fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers of the promise of In Christ Jesus through the gospel. What a great description. Listen, this is who you are. You want to know how God sees you, how Christ sees you? You are first, number one, a fellow heir. You stand to inherit all that Christ has promised you. You're a fellow inheritor, a fellow participant, a joint heir in all that God has promised you. You're also, secondly, a fellow member. Paul invented this word. This word did not exist up until Paul pens the book of Ephesians. And right here, he he invents this word, sus soma, one body, one entity. He coins this new term to express this revolutionary concept that somehow you're brought together through Christ into this one new church such that you're not a second class relative. You're not a, a second-class person. You're not kind of the, the in-laws. Nothing against in-laws. Love my in-laws. But you, you don't have the second-class status in the church. You're not that kind of that weird family member that everyone knows about, and you just kind of pretend they're not there and wish that they kind of weren't at family parties, right? Y'all, everyone has one of those. You're thinking about that person right now. But in the church, there's none of that. You don't have that estranged family member. You don't have the second class citizen. You're all fellow members of one body. You're also thirdly, a fellow partaker. You get to partake in everything that God's promised. All that He's promised for His people. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 12, it said that you were strangers to the covenants of promise. But now, you're fellow partakers. You get to partake of those promises because of what Christ has done. He says in verse 6, look at verse 6. He says that this has taken place because of Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is a reality for us, and you're sitting here today as a participant in this wonderful organism known as the church, where you're sitting here with fellow brothers, fellow sisters, fellow partakers, fellow citizens, fellow members of the body. And it's all possible because of verse 6 Christ and the gospel. He says in verse 7 Of this I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. Paul says, this is what I was made a servant for. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. This is what I'm doing. And Paul, the great persecutor of the church, could not get over the fact that he had the privilege of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. What do you do with a text like this? Can I give you just some suggestions as we close? First, this should make you appreciate the gospel. It should make you appreciate the gospel. None of us would be sitting here today rubbing shoulders with fellow members of the Bride of Christ were it not for the gospel. We love the gospel. You should love the gospel. It's not just a set of truths that gets you into heaven. It is the glorious means by which you participate in this church. It's the gospel. Secondly, it should make you love the church. It should make you love the church. I said it last week you don't just go to church, you're part of the church. You don't just do church. You don't just attend church. This is the church. And it should make you love the bride of Christ. It should make you say, man, I am more fully committed now to the church than I've ever been because I love this bride. And I love how Christ has put together this beautiful organism. Do you love the church? Thirdly, it should make unity a priority. Not only should it make us appreciate the gospel and not only should it make us love the church, it should make unity a priority. You should leave today with a better conviction to say, you know what, there's something between me and a brother in Christ. There's something between me and a sister in Christ. And I've got to make it right. When you understand the theological basis for the church, you can't go on in perpetuity being out of fellowship or in a broken relationship with a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Number four, it makes evangelism crucial. We have the same privilege as Paul. When we walk out those doors, we get to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ to Gentiles and to Jews and to Hispanics and to Chinese doesn't matter how's your evangelism Are you rubbing shoulders with people for the sake of the gospel are you rubbing shoulders for the sake of telling them the phenomenal news that they can be a part of this church the universal church of christ because of what he accomplished at the cross pray with me lord These truths just don't grow old. Even though we've been at this for a few weeks, these truths just don't grow stale, Father. We are continually overwhelmed by the simplicity and yet the profundity of the gospel. Lord, we we're a part of a an organism which is a an expression of the power of Christ's sacrifice. And the world around us is clamoring for something to get unity. Something to force people to get along. And here we are a part of the most glorious institution on the face of the planet. And it's all possible because of the cross. Father, forgive us for a low view of the church. Forgive us for a too familiar view of the church. Forgive us, Father, for taking for granted what this body represents. And may it drive us to a deeper appreciation for the privilege that we have of being a part of the Bride of Christ. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.